1832, there was a horrible epidemic that hit New York City. It was the plague of cholera. A somber crowd met in the City Hall Park in July of 1832 to hear the bad news that the epidemic was at its peak. The cause unknown, prognosis dire. People were by any means seeking to escape the city out into the country where they thought the fresh air would give them health and safety. A writer for the New York Evening Post said, the roads in all directions were lined with well-filled stagecoaches, livery coaches, private vehicles, equestrians, all panic-struck, fleeing the city as we may suppose the inhabitants of Pompeii fled when the red lava showered down upon their houses. One resident in the city near to the center of the outbreak said this, There is no doing business here. If I accept the work done by cholera, the doctors, the undertakers, the coffin makers, our bustling city now wears a most gloomy and desperate aspect. One may take a walk up and down Broadway and scarce meet another soul. The population of New York in that day was about 250,000. By the way, about the same population as Greater Lansing today. And in that city of 250,000, a quarter of a million, 3,500 plus people died. If you would take those same stats to New York today, a city of 8 million, that would be over 100,000 people dying because of cholera. In June of 2008, the New York Historical Society put on an exhibition called The Plague of 19th Century Gotham. And it was artifacts and details and stories of the thousands who died and way, the way the city tried to cope. If we were to go back to 60 AD, the year roughly in which Timothy was working as a pastor in Ephesus, we might realize that there was something of an epidemic in that city. But it wasn't a deadly disease. It was the presence of false teachers. And so the Apostle Paul wrote one letter to Timothy to give him some instruction and dealt with some of the false teachers the first time. And then several years later, wrote another letter to Timothy. We call it 2 Timothy, the letter we are studying and felt compelled to continue that discussion. Because although it's not a deadly disease that kills the body, it is certainly a deadly disease that can destroy the soul. False teaching. Paul mentioned in his first letter that there were those like Hymenaeus and Alexander who of their own faith went shipwrecked, crashed upon the shore, and Paul delivered them over to Satan so that, they would not, so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. They not only left the faith, but Hymenaeus and Alexander were promoting false teaching to lead others away from the true faith as it's found in Jesus Christ. That's found in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 20. Like the cholera epidemic, it seemed that people were dying daily. And so the Apostle Paul wanted to 
strengthen Timothy as a young pastor in a difficult place. He was trying to harden him up, as it were, to give him some backbone to spiritually face the good fight that he would have to put on. It was a daunting occupation in a difficult city to be a teacher of truth and to transmit the truth carefully and accurately to the next generation. That's what Paul tells Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. That you are indeed to take the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and transfer them to reliable people. Not the untrust, uh, not the, uh, the false teachers, but to reliable people who then will be able to teach others also. The gospel is at stake, and the times are serious, Timothy. Don't lose the truth. Now, with that in mind, we come to verse 14, our portion of Scripture for studying this morning. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 14. So Paul said, keep reminding God's people of these things. Keep reminding them of these things. And I suppose that these things goes back to verse 11 and verse 12. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure with him, verse 12, we will reign with him. Remember that times are tough now and, and you need to join me in suffering for Christ and you need to endure difficulties, but in the end... We will reign with him. There is a glorious future. Keep reminding God's people of this. But warn them before God against quarreling about words. I don't know if you underline your Bibles, but this would be a good phrase to underline because it's going to be repeated. And whenever anything is repeated in a short, uh, short portion of Scripture, it's an emphasis. It's a theme. Quarreling about words. The actual original language means a war with words, to battle with words. You know what that is, don't you? Have you ever had a debate with someone? And it, wasn't, uh, it was a fight, but it wasn't with your fists, and it wasn't with a sword. It was with words. Battling with words. It's of no value. And it ruins those who take part, those who listen. He's referring to false teachers here. But now he says to Timothy in verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So I focus on that very familiar verse, the verse 15, and I see the word approved. And I focus on verse 14, and I see those who quarrel with words and ruin their listeners. And I come up with an outline. It's a brilliant outline. It's creative. And this is it. There are two ways to teach the word. Get this. The right way and the wrong way. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Two ways to teach the Word. And he's not only going to tell us about the teachers, he's going to tell us about their teaching method. 
And it's instructive for us to grab hold of this because even though we may not be, you may not be called into a pastoral position, you may not professionally and most of your time study the Word, you are teachers of the Word to your children, to your neighbors, to the Sunday school class to your co-workers at the Bible study, to your small groups. Oh, this is so important in small groups. Do you teach it the right way or the wrong way? Another way to describe these two teachers would be those approved by God and those who are unapproved. We have the word approved in verse 15, so let's play off of that, the approved. This is what Paul wants Timothy to be, an approved teacher of the Word. This implies that he has been tested and tried like silver gone through a fire and has come out the other end, pure, genuine, the dross consumed. And if Timothy does his best to be approved before God, he need not be ashamed. In chapter 1, Paul said to Timothy, don't be ashamed to be identified with me as a prisoner of the Lord. In general, Timothy, you're a timid soul. Don't be so backward in your own personal testimony for Christ. Don't be ashamed of Christ. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. But now he's saying, if you do your best, you don't need to be ashamed. The shame comes for those who don't give it their best effort. It's the shame I would feel in high school uh, when I would come to a test. I would wake up in the morning and say, oh no, that's today. And I hadn't studied. And as we sat down and, and I would work my way through the exam, I felt great shame because I didn't do my best. So Timothy Do your best, and if you do, you won't need to be ashamed. But this approved unto God has the idea that uh, you're not only doing your best, that's part of it, but you're handling correctly the word of truth. The Greek word behind the English word word is the word logos. We use that a lot. It's at the end of theology. It's the study of. The logos is the communication. It is sometimes teaching in a broader sense. Sometimes it's particular words that you use. The Bible is the logos of God. Jesus is the logos of God. The word living and the word written. And so Timothy is to handle accurately this word of truth. In fact, there are three metaphors that God gives in this chapter for the approved. In verse 15, it's the approved worker. It's the metaphor of a hard-working craftsman. In verse 21, it's the picture of a vessel, a vessel of honor, a useful vessel, a useful person in the master's service. And then in verse 24, it's the wonderful word picture of the bond servant. A bond servant 
that's an illustration that comes out of the Old Testament. There were many servants who were servants because they were in debt. Others were born into slavery. But there was something called a bond servant, which was a volunteer position. It's where some willingly, someone willingly gave themselves to their master. And the service for the bond servant, according to Deuteronomy 21, was to go to the post in a door. You would put your earlobe on the post and the master would pierce it with an awl. And you would have the pierced ear, the sign of a bond servant. Everyone knew you had willingly given yourself to a mas the master. Now, Christians are to be bond servants to Jesus, willingly giving ourselves to him and publicly in the society of the pierced ear. The Lord's bond servant must be patient. The vessel of honor must be clean. And the approved workman must work hard, handling accurately the word of truth. Approved by God. When I was in high school, someone gave me the biography of Jim Elliott called Shadow of the Almighty. And that's taken from Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. It's a great biography for a an 18-year-old to read, and it stirred my soul and challenged my faith. And I remember that he, Jim Elliott, wrote a letter to his dad when he was at Wheaton College and his grades didn't look too good. Here's what Jim Elliott said to his dad. Dad, my grades came through this week and, and were, as expected, lower than last semester. However, I make no apologies. I'm not ashamed. And admit I've let them drag a bit for the study of the Bible in which I seek the degree approved, uh, A-U-G, approved unto God. That's from the old King James translation of 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show yourself approved unto God. It's not the degree of Wheaton that's the most important thing, Dad. It is A-U-G. Now that could be a cop out for somebody who wouldn't study you know dad forget about my grades but Jim was a great student and he actually was spending more time in the word and his dad said that's okay would we all seek that degree AUG approved unto God now let's look at the unapproved and just by way of implication we take this name we don't see it in the text but we can put together the portrait these people should be ashamed for they're trying to play the part of God and make his truth say whatever they want it to say and edit by taking some out and change it changing it by turning doctrines into something other than truth. They mishandle the truth. As Timothy is to be an example of one who proclaims the truth accurately, we have two people who are mentioned, Hymenaeus and Alexander, or not Hymenaeus and Alexander this time, but Hymenaeus and Philetus, mentioned in verse 17. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Examples of the unapproved, 
Hymenaeus and Philetus. By the way, Alexander is not mentioned here, but Hymenaeus is. Years ago, Paul gave him over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme, and he's still working. Which shows that false teaching can gain a strong life of its own, and it's not easily put down. They are the bad instruments, the ignoble vessels. And they have forfeited God's approval. Now, not only do we get a portrait of these two teachers, the approved and unapproved, but I think even more importantly, we get a picture of how they handle the word. So let's go back to verse 15. And this is how the approved handle the word. They cut it straight. Verse 15 says, present yourself to God as one approved, as a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Literally, the original says, cut it straight. Cut it straight. Gordon Fee, the, the great Bible New Testament scholar who is with the Lord, said most likely the original sense of this metaphor to cut straight has been lost, but the emphasis remains the same to do it correctly. But we could offer some pictures, possible pictures, and I think the most reliable to me and to my mind is the idea of the path, to cut a straight path. And the reason I say that is because although the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, when it was translated into Greek, it used this same verse or word in the popular verse Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean under your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. It's the idea of a straight way to truth. Not veering off, taking a byway, an alternate route, but straightly cutting. Think of a forest and a destination on the other side, and cutting a path through that forest that goes straight to the destination called truth. Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, used the metaphor of a furrow. It's driving a straight furrow in your proclamation of the truth. It's the idea of cutting a straight path to the right destination. Sophocles even used this Greek word to talk about expounding something soundly. It's orthodox. It's straight. It's right on. It doesn't veer one side to the other. And so when we're talking about someone who speaks plainly and clearly and truthfully, we might say that they are a straight shooter. Right? They give it to you plainly. We do not worship the Bible here, although our detractors throw that up in our face. We are Bible idolaters, they say. No, we don't worship the Bible. We worship the one who gave us the Bible. You take the Bible away and you have absolutely nothing. That's why so many of these churches that once were true have veered off the path and they say the Bible is no longer accurate. We need to give up a basic common sense literal understanding of the book and everything's metaphor. 
Everything's spiritualized. And we can't tell people what's right or wrong because this book doesn't come from God. Or if it does, it's filled with errors and unreliable. And I reject that with every fiber of my being. If this book is not true, we have nothing. If this book is not true, I'm going golfing. I'd rather be doing this, but if this book is not true, I'm not going to waste my time, nor yours. But it is true. There is a God, and He's revealed Himself in this book called the Bible, and it is reliable. It is true. And that's why we can proclaim it thus, saith the Lord. We read this book, we hear the mouth of God. Cut it straight. I don't have the option to do with this book what I want to do. I'm not a painter with an empty canvas. Some people think the Bible is like that. And they paint a picture, usually abstract art. And they say, that's what God wants. And you look at it and say, what in the world is that? Well, that's what it means to me. I don't care what it means to you. I want to know what it means. There are many applications, but truth is truth. Cut it straight. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Think of it carefully. Study it prayerfully. Deep in your heart let its oracles dwell. Ponder its mysteries. Shun not its histories. None can e'er love it too fondly or well because it gives us the heart and mind of God. So, in contrast, the unapproved misses the mark. Look at verse 17. Their teaching, and by the way, the Greek word for teaching here is logos. The same word that we found in verse 15. It's a contrast. Teach the logos of truth, but their logos, their teaching, has a negative effect, like a horrible disease. Hymenaeus and Philetus are the ones who are teaching uh, the truth in an inappropriate way, not handling it accurately. Verse 18, and they have departed from the truth. Look at the word depart. It is very clear this word is taken from the word archery. And it literally means target, not the store, but archery. And this means to miss the target. I thought it would really be nice to, to uh, give you a demonstration today to put up a target and have a bow and arrow and try to shoot the target and show you how to miss it because I know I can do that. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I could set the target up in the back and try to shoot over your heads and that would wake you up and uh, get everyone involved. But that's exactly what they're saying. Interestingly enough, another Greek word used to describe the word sin is to miss the target, to miss the mark. So what do these false teachers do? They are aiming at the truth and they depart from it. Intentionally or unintentionally, they miss the mark. It's not a straight shot. It's crooked. It falls short of being what is true. This is used three times in Paul's letters to Timothy. And it's connected with Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy 
chapter 1. And it ends the book of 1 Timothy. It's the last burden on his heart when he talks about some of those who have professed and have gone astray from the faith. They've departed. They've missed the mark. But there's a whole group of teachers who deviate and swerve from that which is indeed true. Acts chapter 13 talks about the very first missionary journey. And one of the converts, at least outwardly, was a guy named Elymas the Sorcerer. Remember that? Elymas the Sorcerer. And when he saw the apostles doing some amazing things under the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, how much money do I have to get you, give you to get that kind of power? And they rebuked him by saying, you confuse the people by making crooked the straight paths of God. That's a perfect explanation of the false teachers. They make crooked the straight paths of God. Now, we're, we're not talking about minor deviations and differences and secondary matters. We're talking about truth, the logos of God, the truth of God. And they willingly deviate, they willingly wander away and drift and miss the mark. Notice what some of their teaching is. In fact, where it's given to us in verse 17. Or verse, uh, excuse me, verse 18. They depart from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place. Now, we know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the heart of the gospel. Go back to verse 8. Jesus in his death and resurrection, the centerpiece of the good news. And Paul said, this is my gospel. But these false teachers are saying that our resurrection has already taken place. We know the resurrection of Christ has. In other words, they spiritualize, demythologize the truth of Scripture and that's how they lessen its power. Everything becomes spiritualized. Now, there is a spiritual resur resurrection that you and I have experienced when we become believers. Romans chapter 6 says, We were crucified with Christ and we've been raised in Christ in newness of life, right? So, that is a spiritual component, it's a true experience. But these teachers were saying, there's no future resurrection. It's already happened. And they're the same people, most likely, who said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the day of the Lord, it's not in the future, it's already come. Jesus isn't coming again. There's no day of judgment. Don't worry about it. It's already happened. Everything in the Bible is just spiritualized. It's not real. It didn't really happen. It's not going to happen. Make everything into a spiritual story with a moral, and you can eliminate the truth. The resurrection is important. And the Apostle Paul said this type of teaching destroys faith. That's the last part of verse 18. This kind of teaching is like gangrene. Uh, that's a translation that may change depending on the day. You could probably put Ebola in there because it simply is a word that means something that eats away your flesh. 
And many diseases act like that. One translation has it, like an open sore that eats away your body. Or J.B. Phillips, their dangerous teaching is like blood poisoning to the body and spreads like sepsis throughout, from the wound throughout the soul, the body. False teaching spreads like a disease and kills people like cholera. And so Paul is concerned. Let's get back to teaching the truth. Cut it straight. Let people follow you to the right destination. Don't miss the mark and thus take people astray and have them shipwreck their faith, destroy their faith, and lose their soul. It's having a right attitude of God and understanding how our teaching has a powerful effect on people. So we've got to do it right. And Paul ends by saying in verse 19, Nevertheless, even though some have departed from the faith, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, like a cornerstone, a foundation stone of a building that has the name of the owner or some type of motto like we have on our cornerstone. There's a sealed inscription. The Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows. That's secret knowledge, by the way. We don't. We don't know who's a true believer. We don't know whose name is written on the Lamb's book of life. We don't know because people sometimes live a life as a phony with a facade that covers up the true condition of their heart. But God knows. By the way, that's comforting, isn't it? God knows. <laughs> he knows everything. But He knows the true believer. And if you are a true believer, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord, turn away from wickedness. Don't deviate from the truth. Turn away from ungodliness. Embrace the truth. I didn't spend much time emphasizing this, but the false teachers in verse 14 are quarreling about words. They're debating about things that are insignificant and making lies true, and it ruins those who listen, verse 14. Verse 16, they use godless chatter, empty talk, and the end is that people become more ungodly. But God has this foundation. The ones who truly know Him depart from wickedness. There is an inward knowledge and an outward expression. And we can gain some hope when someone's life has been transformed by the grace of God to pursue righteousness and to leave wickedness because in their soul, Jesus reigns. God knows. You don't. And so don't try to play God. I heard a story of a, of a dad who taught his little girl the story of Noah and the ark. And after they were, they were done with the lesson, the little girl said to her dad, Dad, let's play Noah and the ark, okay? I'll be God. <laughs> and the dad said to his little girl, Honey, you, you can't be God. No one can be God. 
So let's play the story, and they picked out some other characters. It was in the following week that those words from his daughter and his counsel to her never left his mind because he found out he was trying to play God at work. He was trying to play God at re in relationships. He was trying to play God with his finances. And when he would do, do that, he heard the voice of his daughter, I'll be God. And then he heard his own voice, no one can play God. You can't play God. In determining who's a believer and who isn't, a believer is one who repents of their sin, believes upon Christ, and the belief is so genuine and true, there's evidence of change in the life. By the way, don't play God with the teaching of the Word. Don't make the Word say anything you want it to say. Cut it straight. Don't deviate from the mark. I love this poem. A glory in the word we find when grace restores our sight. But sin has darkened all our minds and veiled the heavenly light. When God the Spirit clears the view, how bright the doctrines shine. Their light and message clearly prove the author is divine. So wherever mortal man may be, whatever now he seeks, God has the answer for his needs. And in his word, he speaks. Let's cut it straight. Heavenly Father, in our daily living and devotional life, may we cut it straight. As we share the truth, the word of truth with others, may we handle it accurately. And Lord, when we stand before you, May we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, approved unto God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.